It's good to be with you and open up God's Word to you. Uh, you're probably wondering, why does this guy need two pulpits, two sets of notes, two Bibles? I mean, what's this guy going to hit us with this morning? Well, think of it like in IT, you know, when you go into the IT guy's office and he's got two computer screens up there. It's one he's playing game. No, <laughs> just so I can spread out a little bit. Well, have you ever had one of those kind of days when things just kind of don't go right? Uh, maybe you've had one very recently. Uh, I read this story actually many years ago, probably when I was in doing my undergraduate work, and it was in a, a personnel class that I was taking. And uh, but I came across this again just recently about a week or two ago, and it reminded me of this uh, very funny story about somebody who's had a hard day. Now, I can't say that this is 100% uh, true, that may be embellished. The whole thing may be made up, but I thought it was good to start off this morning. This is written by a sailor on the USS Saratoga to his commanding officer. He's just been on leave for a while visiting his family, and he writes this letter and says, Dear Captain, when I got home, I found that my father's brick silo had been struck by lightning, knocking some of the bricks off the top. I decided to fix the silo, and so I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the silo and hoisted a couple of barrels of bricks to the top. When I got through fixing the silo, there were a lot of bricks left over. I pulled the barrel back up again, secured the line at the bottom, and then went up and filled the barrel with the extra bricks. Then I went down to the bottom and cast off the line. You can see where this is going, right? Unfortunately, the barrel of bricks was heavier than I was, and before I knew what was happening, the barrel started down and jerked me off the ground. In my confusion, I decided to hang on. Big mistake. And halfway up, I met the barrel coming down and received a severe blow to the shoulder. I then continued to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers jammed in the pulley. When the barrel hit the ground, it busted the bottom, allowing the bricks to spill out. I was now heavier than the busted barrel and started down again at a very high speed. Halfway down, I again met the barrel and received severe injuries to my shins. When I hit the ground, I landed on the bricks, getting numerous painful lacerations from the sharp edges of the bricks. That's pretty bad, isn't it? It's not over. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of the rope. What was left of the barrel flew down and struck a very heavy blow on the head, putting me in the hospital for three days. I respectfully request five days extension of leave of absence. Well, you may not have had a day quite as bad as that, but we have all had bad days. We've all had failures that are, are our fault and have caused us pain and, and different things of that sort. But the road to success often passes through these failures. A temporary failure does not necessarily bring about the end to our journey. And for some reason, God seems to delight in exalting the humble. And when we fail, we have never been more humble, right? Let me share with you several verses that will tell you what God means here. Matthew twenty three twelve says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
And then in Proverbs eleven twelve, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Let me tell you about a story of a young man named Tommy. When Tommy was a young boy, he had just started school, and he had uh, teachers tell him, and I quote, he's too stupid to learn anything. So his mom did what any mom would do at that point and pulled him out of school and began to homeschool him. Now, this is long before homeschools and co-ops were popular. About the time when uh, Tommy was able to uh, get jobs and work for a living, he was fired from his first two jobs because he wasn't productive enough. But what he really wanted to do was invent things. And he had one project that he was particularly passionate about. But in trying to develop this invention, he failed over 9,000 times. Can you imagine that? I mean, that, that does say a lot about his ability to persevere because you don't fail 9,000 times without starting and trying again, right? But through all of that, through all of those failures, he is the greatest innovator of all time with 1,093 patents to his name. So what did Tommy, we know him as Thomas Edison, credit his success to? He said it was because of his mother and how wholeheartedly she believed in him, and therefore he didn't want to disappoint her. Sometimes what we really need is for somebody to believe in us and to encourage us. And the Bible is filled with examples of this. We have the, the example of J, uh, Jonathan and what he did for David before he became the king of Israel. And there's also the example of Mordecai and what he did for Queen Esther and Elijah and what he did for Elisha, and Barnabas and what he did for John Mark, and what he also did for the Apostle Paul. And what Jesus did, well, he did it for everyone, right? But I was specifically thinking of Simon Peter. But let me tell you about a time when I needed some encouragement, a time when I had failed. When I was growing up, I loved sports, and none more than the game of basketball. And although I was never very tall, I was fast and I was athletic. Uh, there's a picture of me here. My tan has, <laughs> my tan has faded a bit since that picture was taken. I played point guard and my best skills were ball handling and passing and driving and defense. I wasn't a very good shooter, but I could get on a hot streak. In the seventh and eighth grade, the star member of our team was a very tall, very large, and talented boy named Ed. And Ed was really good. Uh, matter of fact, when we were playing in middle school, games lasted 24 minutes. That's half of what an NBA game lasts. And he would routinely average 20 points and 10 rebounds a game. Now, if you double that to an NBA game, that means 40 points and 20 rebounds per game, which is incredible. This guy was Shaq before Shaq was Shaq. But he was also very selfish, and he was a bully. And if you didn't pass him the ball every time he wanted it, you would soon live to regret that decision. So after two years of that, I decided that I was just going to play pickup ball in my neighborhood and focus on schoolwork. Uh, the school system that I was in was three years of middle school and then three years of high school. So I sat out uh, my last year of middle school and was ready to play again. Um, uh, and you know what's interesting? Ironically, 
the year I sat out, Ed didn't play either. So I was ready to start playing again when I got to high school, and one week before school started, I got pneumonia, and I was out for the season. So then when I'm ready to start my junior year of high school, I'm two years removed from competition. I don't know the coach's system, and I was cut from the team. It was devastating, and it was humiliating. I'm sure you've had your own story of failure, different details, but everyone has this. Bad grades, failing a class, not making the team, failing the audition, being dumped by a boyfriend or a girlfriend, maybe failing in business, being fired, not getting the job that you were sure that you were going to get and that you would succeed at, a divorce or any relationship that that you wanted to last and it didn't, trying to lose weight unsuccessfully. Actually, that's been my story for years. I've had some recent success, and one day, uh, this is just about two weeks ago, this is a true story, I stood on the scale, and instead of numbers, it said low. And I'm like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Turns out the battery was low. Here's one of the uh, most famous stories of failure and continuing. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, uh, and if not, uh, the details, let me just remind you of it. This is the story of Abraham Lincoln. His mother died when he was just nine years old. When he was a young man, 13 years later in his early 20s, he lost his job due to the bankruptcy of the store owner. A year after that, he ran for and was defeated for legislature. The year after that, he failed in business with his partner. He not only paid back his bankruptcy debt, he paid back his partner's bankruptcy debt over the years. A year after that, he was elected to legislature. One year after that, his sweetheart, Ann Rutledge, died. Not surprisingly, the year after that, he had a nervous breakdown. Two years later... He ran for and was defeated for speaker. Five years after that, defeated for nomination for Congress. Three years after that, he was elected to Congress. Three years after that, rejected for land officer. Five years later, defeated for Senate. Two years after that, defeated for nomination for vice president. Two years after that, he was again defeated for the Senate. But in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected the 16th president of the United States. Probably our nation's greatest president at a time when we needed it the most. And although none of us knows the answer to what if, we could ask that question, what if he had given in to defeat? What if he had given in to discouragement? I can't answer that question, but there is a professor named James M. McPherson, a doctor. His specialty is American Civil War history. He is at Princeton University, and this is what he has written about that possibility. I think that the course of American history would have been much different if Lincoln had not been president. The United States might well have divided into two nations with the possibility of additional divisions and the institution of slavery might have lasted for several more decades. 
The Civil War transformed the United States into a modern, powerful, and free nation. And without Lincoln's leadership, this transformation might not have happened or would have taken a very different course. Let me tell you about the Apostle Paul. He had an encouraging friend when he needed it the most. Yes, you remember before Paul's conversion, he was known as Saul, but he was also known by his reputation, that of being a persecutor of Christians and the young church. It even got so bad that after arresting many young uh, Christians in this church, he stood by approving and personally witnessing the murder of Stephen, one of the early church leaders. But Paul was converted. He became a follower of Christ. And shortly after that, he went to Arabia for three years. That's in Galatians chapter 1. But when he returned to Jerusalem, the people in the church only remembered the man by what he had done, the man who had persecuted the church, the man who had stood by and approved while their leader was murdered. But Barnabas was willing to accept Paul as a friend and as a student. Early in their relationship, it's, it's obvious that Barnabas was the leader. We know them today. When we think of them, we just say uh, Paul and Barnabas, right? But at that first missionary journey that they went on together, sent out by the church in Jerusalem, they were known as Barnabas and Paul because Barnabas was the leader. He was the one who was encouraging this younger believer to become the man that he would become. But at some point, the student became the leader of that group of ministers. But without Barnabas and his encouragement, Paul never would have had that same start in ministry. Let me put a little bit of a twist on this story by adding another character to the plot. His name is John Mark. And although he was an apostle, he didn't hold an official position or title among the original 12 disciples. The first time we hear about him was at one of the most unbelievable and remarkable prayer meetings ever held. Let me tell you just a little bit about this. At the time, King Herod, who was the official ruler of Palestine under the government of Rome, he had arrested James, the leader of the early church, and then he had him beheaded. And he got so much uh, approval from the Jewish leaders that he decided to arrest the next leader of the early church, Peter. So Peter is in prison, and the church and his friends are worried that he also is going to be martyred. And so they hold this prayer meeting at the home of a godly, well-to-do widow in Jerusalem, and her name was Mary. Now, this isn't the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark. We are not told how John Mark became a disciple of Christ or when that happened, but it's evident that his conversion is due to the ministry of Peter because in his letter to the church, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he calls him, "'My son, Mark.'" And in Mark chapter 14, 15, we know that after all the disciples had fled Jesus at the time of his arrest, that Mark alone had stayed behind. Now, here's the twist. John Mark's uncle was Barnabas. 
And when they were about, when Barnabas and Paul were about to go on this first missionary journey sent out by the, the church in Jerusalem, Barnabas said, let's take my nephew John Mark with us. And so he went. But when given this incredible opportunity in the early church to be the assistant on this missionary journey, John Mark experienced a humiliating failure. He left in the middle of the trip and went home. We don't know why it happened, but we do know that Paul didn't think it was a very good reason because when it was time for the second missionary journey, he said, there is no way that guy is going with us. Barnabas, his uncle, stood up for him and said, let's give him another chance. But they disagreed so much that they split and went on two different missionary journeys. Paul took Silas with him, but fortunately for John Mark, he had a faithful uncle who would not give up on him when he had stumbled. Barnabas, a man well known for his ability to console and encourage, refused to allow his young nephew to remain a casualty of his past. So together, Barnabas and John Mark were used by God to multiply the missions efforts of the early church. And although we don't read of Mark preaching a single sermon or performing any miracles, although he could have and they're just not written about, he did become an apostle, a great historian, and we still remember him today 2,000 years after his death. Another story, one of the most famous about friendship, is found in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. This is the story of Jonathan and David. Now, the first king of Israel was Saul, and Saul's oldest son was Jonathan. So what happens when you're the son of the king, the oldest son of the king? You're in line to become the king when he dies, right? And that's what Saul wanted. Uh, that's what Jonathan was being prepared for. But Saul disobeyed God so many times and in such ways that God finally said, I am not allowing your kingly line to continue. When you die, that's it. And David will be the next king of Israel. Now, if you're thinking about just two ordinary men with those competing spirits and, and all that, what would you expect Jonathan to do? He, you would expect him to fight for his right to be the next king of Israel. But what did he do instead? He encouraged this young man who was going to take his place in the kingly line of Israel. Saul didn't like that. He wanted his line to continue. I don't know if it was because he, he felt so strongly about his son or that he felt a pride in his own ability to produce a kingly line, but he wasn't going to let this happen. No matter what God said through his prophet, he decided that he was going to get rid of David by killing him, and then his son Jonathan would be the next king. Jonathan did everything he could to preserve the life of his friend, David. At one point, it was, it was so bad that Saul actually threw a spear at his own son, Jonathan, trying to kill him. It was at that time that Jonathan and David had to part ways, and soon after that, Jonathan was killed in battle. You know, I've often wondered if David would have fallen to the great sins of adultery with Bathsheba and the arranged murder of her husband Uriah, if he had still had a man who was closer than a brother, such as Jonathan, later in his life. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God made a mistake in allowing Jonathan to be killed. What I'm wondering is, what if David had taken the time and the effort to get a new friend, someone who would encourage him and hold him accountable? Would things have turned out differently if he had done that? In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, William Barclay says this, One of the highest of human duties is the duty of encouragement. It's easy to laugh at men's ideals. It's easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It's easy to discourage others. This world is full of discouragers. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time of word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. You know, I have that quote hanging on my wall of my home office, and I often look at that when I'm in need of encouragement myself. The writer of the letter of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Think about it. Be proactive about it. How can we help others be successful in their life, in their Christian walk? And the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 4.29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen, those who hear your words. Now let me tell you the most important story of encouragement ever. This involves our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was towards the end of His earthly ministry, and it begins at a time in that last week in the upper room with Jesus washing the feet of His disciples. And right after that, he says that one of you will betray me. Let me read these words to you. This is in John chapter 13, beginning at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Verse 33, little children... Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? And then these infamous pride-filled words followed, and he said, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That must have just cut to the bone when Peter heard those words. Because I'm sure he didn't make his boast thinking, I don't really believe this, but I'll say it anyway. He believed what he said. He did speak before he thought, 
But then when Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, you're not going to go with me to the end, that must have been very difficult to hear. And now we're going to go over to Matthew chapter 26, beginning of verse 69. This is after Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been taken uh, to the courtyard to be tried. <clears throat> we know that uh, the Apostle John, <clears throat> excuse me, he knows one of the Jewish leaders, and so he goes into the courtyard <clears throat> and he says, uh, can I come in? I want to be a witness of this, and could my friend also come in, his friend being Peter? And so that's how they got in. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, now remember, a servant and a girl, that's the lowest of the low in that social standing at that time. So the lowest of the low comes up to him and says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And this big, strong fisherman who had just recently whipped out a sword to defend Jesus claimed that he would never leave him he went out and he wept bitterly. I think the reason why so many of us are encouraged by the life of Peter is because we can identify with him. We've all made big boasts about what we're going to do for God and failed. We've all felt this way. Try to put yourself in his place at that point. Try to imagine what Peter felt like after this colossal fail. That he had done exactly what he said and intended not to do. Perhaps wondering what the other ten disciples now thought about him. Thinking that there was no hope for him. Maybe that he had done the same thing that Judas had done. Judas had betrayed him. Peter had denied him. How was he any better? But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. And we read at the end of John, in chapter 21, I want to read to you this story. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, 
the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. So there's seven of the, the remaining 11 disciples are here at this point. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, do you think he was just saying that because he was bored, wanted to uh, take you know, his fly fishing equipment out and go catch a fish or two? What I'm thinking is Peter was a fisherman by trade before Jesus called him. And now that he has failed Jesus and feels like Jesus will have nothing to do with him anymore, I'm just going to go back to what I know I can do. Obviously, I failed at being a disciple, but I know I can catch fish, so I'm, I'm just going to go out and, and go fishing. And the other said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So he's probably thinking at this point, great, I can't even catch fish anymore. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Now, I'm, I'm thinking that wasn't just, you know, polite conversation. Jesus is saying, well, little boys, did you catch anything? And they're like, no, and turn their back towards him probably. And he says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Again, I'm just trying to think as the disciples did, oh, yeah, right, mister, I didn't think of that. Oh, let's throw it on the other side, because fish wouldn't go past the middle of the boat and go from the, the right to the left. But they cast it, and now they were able to haul it, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea, not for some bad purpose. He was going to swim and get to shore before the boat could get there. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in, the pla in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Again, I'm just trying to think as Peter did. He's thinking, well... I couldn't stand up for you when I should have, but if you want me to go get a fish off the boat, I can do that. And so he goes out there, probably runs out there, jumps on the boat, and he doesn't just bring back a handful of fish. He's dragging the whole net with 153 of the largest fish you've ever seen back to Jesus. You want a couple of fish? I'll bring you a whole net full of fish. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. And this was the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And if you've ever heard a sermon based on this, you know that the first thing he was asking him was, 
do you have a godly, great, unselfish love for me? And I can just imagine Jesus looking intently at Peter as he said this. And I can also imagine Peter not meeting his gaze and looking into the fire instead and mumbling, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I have a friendship for you. I love you as a friend. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Not talking about sheep in a, a, as livestock. He's talking about take care of the young converts that will be coming into the church. That's a big job, Jesus is saying for him. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you have this great agape love for me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I have this phileo, friendship, love for you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you have a love as a friend for me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you have that kind of a friendship love for me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is an amazing thing because it transformed Peter from being a failure who felt like his life's purpose was over to a man who had been given the task by Jesus himself to take care, to disciple the young church. And you know what happened? In Acts chapter 2, An amazing thing happened. The disciples are, are in this large group of thousands of people. They didn't come because they wanted to hear the gospel. They're actually being antagonistic towards the disciples. And it's this same man who had acted cowardly who is now speaking about Jesus. And in his evangelistic sermon is actually accusing these people of crucifying Christ whether it was physically done or whether it was just because of their own sinful nature, their own sinful acts, just like you and I, were the reason that Jesus was placed on that cross and crucified. That's how boldly he is speaking to this crowd. In chapter 2, verse 14 of Acts, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And then he gives this great evangelistic sermon. And what is the result of that down in verse 41? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The man who was a coward before a servant is now preaching to thousands of people, and as a direct result of that, 3,000 people are now part of the church. Pastor and author Chuck Swindoll has said, the lack of encouragement is almost an epidemic. And to illustrate that point, I ask you, when was the last time you encouraged somebody? 
He continues on, I firmly believe that an individual is never more Christ-like than when full of compassion for those who are down, needy, discouraged, or forgotten. How terribly essential is our commitment to encouragement. So do you know somebody who is in need of encouragement? Maybe it's a student who's off at school. Maybe it's a young couple early in their marriage who's just learning to get along together. Maybe it's somebody who's been divorced and is struggling with self-acceptance. Maybe it's a forgotten servant of God. Maybe somebody who is serving in, in some ministry in the church that doesn't get a lot of recognition. Or maybe it's somebody who's actually far removed from the church, serving in a country far across the seas that we don't hear from that often. Maybe it's a widow who needs your companionship. Maybe it's somebody who has tried something new and failed at it. We need to encourage generously. In Hebrews 3.13, it says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be deceived by the hardness of sin. What exactly does that mean, to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Here's how it's written in the New Living Translation. We are supposed to encourage Christ's followers so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. That's a great ministry. Did you realize that your encouragement can keep somebody from hardening their heart towards God? Those hardening tendencies of sin can often be counteracted by somebody who is truly concerned. That's our duty as Christians. So the question is, so what? What difference does this make tomorrow morning after I say amen today? What difference does this make two weeks or even two months from now? Is the point that people should feel sorry for us because we have not been successful? No. Is the point that I should encourage other people? Yes. Is the point that if somebody isn't encouraging me, that they are sinning? No. Tell me, which one of the ten disciples do we ever read about in the Bible encouraging Peter after his failure? It wasn't any of them. Who was it? It was Jesus Christ. Your encouragement comes through Scripture and the Holy Spirit, not waiting for somebody else to come along. If you're in need of encouragement, don't sit on the sidelines waiting for somebody else to lift your spirits and to tell you that everything is going to be okay. Instead, immerse yourself in Scripture and in prayer. And most importantly, is the point that God can overcome any failure in my life and turn it into something incredible. Definitely yes. Joel 2.25 says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. He's not talking to them about their crops. He's talking to all of us about the years that we have wasted through failure and that He can reclaim those years and turn them into something beautiful. Deuteronomy 4.29-30 through 30 says, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey Him. 
no matter what you have done, no matter how many years you have wasted, if you seek God, you will find Him, and He will redeem those years that we have wasted. So what will you do to become an encourager? You're going to have to make a plan or nothing will happen except good intentions. Will you actively resist pouring cold water on somebody else's ideas? Have you ever heard these things said? That will never work. Oh, we've tried that before. Good luck with that. Those are discouraging words, not encouraging words. Don't be that person. Instead, follow the example of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Instead, imitate Jonathan, the greatest of friends ever. Most importantly, imitate Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, it reads, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Let's pray. Father, you have given us so many examples, the best of which is your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to be encouragers. Help us, when we see somebody down and out, to bring to them a word of encouragement, to pray with them, But, Father, when it's us ourselves that are in that position, help us to not just sit around feeling sorry for ourselves, thinking somebody else needs to come and do something for us. Instead, get us into your Word. Give us the encouragement to spend time in prayer, to allow your Holy Spirit to have free reign in our lives. And, Father, we know that because you have promised us that when we do that, you will redeem not only the future years, but the years that we've wasted in a way that we can't even understand. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for our church, for the people that make up the church, for the encouragement we get from them. Just being here together and seeing this place full of people who love you and want to worship you. And Father, right now, we want to worship you by giving you back some of what you have given us. Out of obedience, yes, but out of love, too. Father, would you take those gifts and do a mighty work here in Erie and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.